guys, this is our podcast at the Clemson Foothills Church. We're glad you found us. Join us as we discover what the Bible says about following Jesus, loving God, and serving one another. Feel free to visit our website at clemsonfoothills.com or check out the Clemson Foothills Church YouTube channel. We love learning what God says to us in His Word, and we hope this podcast helps you to do that as well. With all that said, let's dive into the episode for this week. don't have the the live stream today so there there's no proof that any of this happened <laughs> Reese has rescued us with lots of technical difficulties Good morning my name is Patrick I'm going to be doing the lesson today I uh I've been in Clemson for 10 years I studied undergrad in agricultural science, graduated in 2014, started working at the university, did some research, got my master's, just graduated with my master's in August, uh, took, took last fall off just to recharge from grad school, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to be here. I uh, <clears throat> see a lot of unfamiliar faces, which is good. Glad y'all are here. I'm not the normal preacher, so if you like me, then vote for me. <laughs> if you don't like me, then come back because you'll probably get a better lesson next week. Um, our our normal leader is recovering from some what military training, basically. <laughs> He, he did some kind of crazy, like, Spartan ruck race. And, uh, yeah, so we're actually going to take a collection after this. We're going we're gonna to check him into Clemson Downs Assisted Living. Abby and the kids can go visit on weekends. All right. So, uh, so just to give you all some backstory, some context, um, the sermon series that we're starting, uh, that Keith started a few weeks ago, was called Renew, and um, it's just about kind of refreshing things, new year, get refocused. Uh, it's, it's one of our church traditions that every year we set aside three weeks in January to just kind of get reoriented, fresh start, shake off all the whatever happened in 2020 and, and get focused on the future. And uh, we call it the 21-day fast, um, which fasting is technically not eating or drinking. We, very few of us are actually not eating or drinking for 21 days, what most of us are doing is, is some kind of structured um, removal of, you know, a, a diet, like we're cutting out, you know, things we like to eat, junk food, alcohol, sweets, maybe you're cutting out meat, or maybe you're only eating meat and vegetables, and um, it, it's just a kind of, it's kind of a, a spiritual, mental, physical detox to help us get focused and just practice saying no to ourselves, uh, practice self-discipline, self-control. It's also an intentional time to, to reclaim our time, how we budget um, our energy and our focus. And so some of us have also given up social media or TV or you know, just being more structured and disciplined and intentional about when you wake up or when you go to bed or spending time with other people. and. Um, so if you hear people referencing the fast or 21 days, that's actually it starts today for us. Um, so if you want to know more questions about that, feel free to ask anybody. Um, <clears throat> I also want to warn you, we're uh, going to do some thinking today. Uh-huh. So you can go to the cafe and get coffee if you need to. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> you can start your fast after the service. Um, put on put on your thinking caps. We're gonna explore. We're gonna explore a word called repentance. And so I want to start just by asking, when you hear that, what comes to your mind? And that, that's not rhetorical. I'm, I'm curious. There, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, just just what, what was the first emotion? What was the first thought? What came to your head? Um, I think initially, when I first became a disciple, I was like, you know, repentance was something that I really... You know, um, I cherished, like, I really was like, okay, this is, I can do this to help my brothers and sisters. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it's something that I needed in my life. It was good. It's, the, the word that comes to my mind is, is medicine. Hmm. Um, so. Okay. Medicine. Yeah, Lindsay. Change. Change. That's good. Anyone else? What, what did you think? What did you feel? It'd be difficult and painful. Yes, thank you. That was what I was looking for. Was I? I don't like this word. Y'all, y'all gave a lot of good, clean answers. I, I hope you were honest. But my, my honest answer is I don't like it. I, I kind of have to grip my teeth when I hear this. It, it, it just has some kind of connotation of like chores or or work or something that might be necessary but isn't enjoyable. Um, so I, I hope we can, if anyone else can relate in any way, then I, I hope we can change that some today. We're going to explore this word in great detail. And I want to start by looking at um, where it came from. So in the Bible, we're going to look at our subject in its natural habitat. In the Old Testament, it first shows up as two different words, Shub and Naham. Shub is more of a physical, like, turn. And Naham is kind of a more figurative, like, non-physical meaning. So in the spiritual context, Naham is arguably more helpful or more appropriate, but both were used in the Old Testament in Hebrew. This is what Hebrew looks like. This is not a very old scroll, relatively speaking. The oldest ones are like, like they, they look like this. They're kind of gross and nasty and dirty, but this is what it would have looked like to them using it then thousands of years ago. Hebrews read from right to left, Originally, Hebrew didn't have any vowels, any spaces, or any punctuation. Later, as language is kind of standardized, they go back and they add all those things. So the earliest versions of Old Testament look like this. Then we see after the Old Testament, the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew... Some cultural things happen. There's a guy named Alexander the Great who conquered a huge section of the known world. And he implemented a common language of Greek. And so with that, the Hebrew Bible is translated into the common tongue, which is called Koine Greek. And so what the... Disciples had, when you read the stories of the Gospels, the Bible that the disciples had at the time was individual scrolls of the Torah and the prophets and the wisdom literature written in Greek. Sometimes in your Bible, you might see at the bottom, there's a reference and it'll say uh, Septuagint or it might say LXX. That's Roman Roman numerals for 70. Septuagint was Latin for 70. It was 70 academic guys that did the conversion from Hebrew to Greek. So when the disciples read the Bible, they were reading. Most of them didn't read it in Hebrew. Most of them read it in Greek. 
When Jesus read at the temple, he even read it in Greek. When he reads some quotes from the Old Testament. And so if you look at this word that was the most commonly used, repentance, it was shub. Now it's epistrepho, which again is, it's not really the figurative one. It's more of the literal turning is the connotation. It just means turn around. This is what Greek looks like. So on the left is Hebrew, and the middle is Greek. I think on the right is, is Latin. Just to kind of give you all some visuals, help you immerse in this so it's not just facts. So after the next, the New Testament starts, John the Baptist does he, does he say epistrepho? He doesn't. He says something else. When he says repent, he says metanoite, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the first words preached in the New Testament. He shows up in the spirit and power of Elijah Angel Gabriel announced him, said he was great before the Lord. He was likely raised by Essene monks in the desert in Qumran. Very spiritual man. He says, Metanoite, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I read that and I said, JB, what are you doing? Where did he get that from? So I said, well, is that anywhere else? I called some fact checkers. Jesus says it too. It's recorded twice by Matthew and Mark. Metanoia. It seems odd. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it does. What does it mean? Well, this word isn't as unfamiliar to us as you might think. There's two words that we might be familiar with, paranoia and metamorphosis. So if we look at the stems of these words, paranoia, para means off to the side, and noia is one's philosophy, paradigms, beliefs, or worldview. So if you're paranoid, then your understanding is off. With metamorphosis, meta means after, and it's in the context of change or transformation. Think of like a butterfly, metamorphosis. So we know these words, we know the stems. So if we put it together, It means after mind. Does that make sense or does that just seem kind of more confusing? confusing. That John the Baptist would show up and say, after mind. So if we do some more digging, we find that it's a change of the mind Emphasis on the after, expressing transformation. It shows up a few more times. In Luke 15, the prodigal son, when he hits rock bottom, says he came to his senses. It's the exact same word. In Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, Jesus explains himself to his disciples And all of a sudden they realize who they're talking to, who they thought was a stranger, was actually Jesus. They experienced a kind of mental revolution. Shows up a few other times. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to metanoia, to repentance, to aftermind, to mental transformation. Produce fruit in keeping with metanoia. So it shows up several more times. 
So it seems like John was not in error when he came up with his own word. But when you look at it today, I consulted the internet. Oxford says that action, this is all the definition of repentance. The action of repenting, sincere regret or remorse is what it looks like. Webster, to turn from sin, that sounds like Shub and Nahum. Sounds like Epistroph. To turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. What does that look like? To feel regret or contrition. It's kind of interesting. Both of those have the same definition and the same illustration. Synonyms, most common ones are remorse, contrition, penitence, and sorrow. So how did we get from Shub, Nahum, Epistrepho, Metanoia, to remorse and contrition? I feel like that they're all related, but all kind of very different at the same time. So if you look at church history, I'm not going to explain all this. <laughs> it's actually a pretty sad story of looking at translations. And just like in the stories of the Bible and our own history... There's a lot of inst- there's some really inspiring characters and moments, but overall it's it's a long, sad, disappointing story of of failure, abuse of power, pride and indifference. The Catholic Church takes over repentance, the word they redefine it, and somehow you end up with feeling sorry, and paying a tax. For almost 1,500 years, that's repentance. That's what it looks like. Now, if, if Jesus thought feeling sorry was what we're supposed to do, why would he come onto the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That's not good news. <laughs> Feel sorry. I don't want to hear that on Christmas or my birthday. <laughs> if anything, it makes more sense to say, Feel sorry, the kingdom of hell is at hand. But that's not what he said. So here we have a distinction. All these words, we end up kind of getting locked into this like funeral service of beating ourselves up, feeling sorry, which maybe there's a place for that. It feels kind of incomplete. I like all of the definitions, Miriam uh, Webster and the Oxford about changing your life, turning around. But then when they say what it looks like, it's just kind of this internal, it's almost like a pity party, like a guilt, a guilt trip. But metanoia, what John the Baptist was getting at, is straining towards something ahead joyfully. It's the after. It's not looking behind starts with an internal transformation. That root word from metanoia, the noia, the new, it's saying you're having a complete paradigm shift. It's a, it's a cosmic, radical inner transformation that results in an outward transformation. So that's what John the Baptist is getting at. But what happens is the word gets mistranslated once, and then all subsequent translations 
reference that second source. And so when the Bible goes from Greek to Latin to German to English, in the 1600s with King James, we get, do ye penance. That's what repent means. Which is like, flog yourself and feel bad. And after Martin Luther, we finally got rid of like paying the tax. <laughs> you literally had to like pay money depending on how much you'd send to try and get out of purgatory before you go to heaven. This is what Jesus and John the Baptist are getting at. So what is it not? If it's an internal transformation that leads to an external change in behavior, there's a few ways to go down that road sincerely and wrongly. So internally, you can have this kind of trail of tears that you go down where you just feel guilty and that's the end goal. Externally, if there's no kind of internal transformation at all, then it is just the external kind of about face, turn around, change, which is also good, but it's kind of incomplete. And it's easy. We see, we see this cover to cover in the Bible, and I see this in my own life, and I see this all around me in religion is a failure to live out what we believe. And I think that's what, what turns a lot of people off to the idea of God or religion or spiritual community or a relationship with him is seeing the hypocrisy in the lives of those following. You see it in the Old Testament when God set aside his people and said, I'm going to make you my chosen people and be my missionaries to the nations. You're going to live different. And there was, there was really, a, as a whole, a failure for those inside to distinguish themselves from those outside. Last midweek, we read Isaiah 58. And that was a perfect illustration of this. The people were going to temple. They were praying. They were meeting together. They were even fasting. Doing all the right things. And God is like, you're totally missing the point. The internal point of doing this. You're not loving each other. You're treating each other harshly. You're taking advantage of each other. You're being selfish. You're being bitter. You're being arrogant. You're unconcerned about the people that I care about. God's like, I would rather you take care of those people than go through all these religious motions. And the scary thing is, is that we can be very self-deceived. It's not, it's not a malicious now, like no one, no one does that intentionally. But pride blinds us. Alfreda, you referenced this. Paul's writing to the Christians in Corinth. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, 
But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proven yourselves innocent in this matter. And so, going back to this slide, he talks about grief, but it's just an initial... It's just a small part. It's not the, the goal. No one's goal is just to make you sad and guilty and mopey. And there is the external turn, but it comes from the internal transformation that happens. And he explains this so well. This is such an awesome illustration of what it's supposed to look like, what... John the Baptist and Jesus were calling people to when they first used the word metanoia. What God has been calling us to all along. Some biblical examples. I think, I don't know if it was last Sunday or or a midweek, Keith looked at 2 Kings 22 and 23. King Josiah finds the scriptures in the temple and it breaks his heart that they're not they're, they're not even they didn't even know it was it existed to be lost and the story of him grieving and then radically repenting overhauling the entire nation's religious structure is an awesome example Another one in Jonah 3, the Ninevites, the most corrupt nation in the world at the time, the Assyrians, they get the word preached to them, absolute, complete national repentance. From the king down to the servant, everyone in the country puts on sackcloth, mourns, sees where they are and where they want to be, and they seek God. They even tell the livestock not to eat. I don't know if that's hyperbole or not, but it still hits home. In the New Testament, Zacchaeus, a uh, abuser of his neighbors, a betrayer of his country, a greedy, selfish man, meets with Jesus and immediately... He changes. He says, here and now, I will give back all the money that I've stolen. I'll repay everyone twice. I'm giving away all of my wealth. He says like half or some like huge number percentage of his total assets. He says, I'm just going to give it all away right now. Paul goes from being an extremely zealous, successful Pharisee to forsaking all of his accolades and credentials, all of his previous pursuits, he says it's rubbish, it's trash. I really couldn't care less about that because of Jesus. Even Peter, something something small compared to some of these other examples, Peter starts by saying, God, you don't need to wash my feet. And Jesus says, yes, I do, and explains what's going on. And Peter says, oh, then wash all of me. Start with my head. (laughs) Don't miss a spot. And it's this idea of, of radical transformation that starts on the inside. I want to look at um, an extra biblical source means it's not in the Bible. And, and sometimes this bothers me when, when people use examples from culture, from the pulpit, because I feel like people, that means people are more connected to other sources than the Bible, and they're more moved. So I, I want to go ahead and say... I don't like it when other people do this or or I'm very hesitant to ever do this. 
But Jesus also told a lot of stories to try and get a point across. And I think stories have a way of kind of circumnavigating our defenses, our our mental whatever. And it just kind of goes straight to your heart when you listen to a story. So I'm going to quote some of a story and I ask that you just humor me. And stay with me if this if this bothers you like it would me if I were you right now. Uh, I'm sorry. We're all probably familiar with this. Ebenezer Scrooge. All right, I'm going to uh, ask the audience, phone a friend. I need all of the men to stand up. Just right where you are. All right, I want you to count off starting with one. One, two, three, four, uh, five, six, seven, eight. That's it. You are either lucky or unlucky. You'll decide later. (laughs) All right, eight. Stay standing. I'm going to go through eight quotes, one per slide. And I want each respective numbered man to read one. I need you to be loud. I need you to be energetic. Channel your thespian. Oh boy. <laughs> I figured y'all are y'all are hearing me too much, so uh, put your glasses on or do whatever you need to do. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. The bedpost <laughs> was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge repeated. As he scrambled out of his bed, the spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas, Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, oh, Jacob, on my knees. He was so fluttered and so glowing with good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit and his face was wet with tears. Awesome. Thank you. Number two. They are not tore down cried Scrooge, holding one of his bed curtains in his arms. They are not tore down, greens and all. They are here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. His hands were busy with his garments all of this time turning them inside out, putting them upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to every kind of extravaganza. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) You can do it all again if you want. I don't know what to do, Christ Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> crying at the same breath and making a perfect lacoon of himself with his stockings. I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody. A happy new year to all the world. Hello here. Whoop. Hello. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I don't know what day of the month it is, said Scrooge. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello. Whoop. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) 
Y'all are stirring me. I'm moved. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he re uh, recompensed the boy, were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and chuckled till he cried. Thank you. Shaving was not an easy task, for his hand continued to shake very much. And shaving requires your attention, even when you don't dance while you are dancing. <laughs> but if you had cut the end of his nose off, he would have put a piece of sticking plaster over it and been quite satisfied. Thank you. <laughs> a Mariner Christmas Bob, my good fellow, that I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family, and we will soon discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking Bishop Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Crafton. Thank you. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him. Thank you all. I love this example. It's such an illustration of radical cosmic transformation that started on the inside. He wasn't just grieving, but it did say he sobbed at one point. He didn't just modify his external behavior, still grumbling on the inside and full of bah humbugs. <clears throat> Complete transformation. He doesn't even know what to do with himself. So we're done with Charles Dickens. We're done with our Literature 101. We're done with our etymology and the study of words. And you might be thinking, thank you, Professor Patrick, <laughs> for giving us such a boring lesson. What am I supposed to do with that? That's what I asked myself this week. That information is just information, and by itself it isn't very helpful. And my goal isn't to change you, but I hope to equip you and help you experience inner transformation, a radical cosmic shift that starts from the inside changes your paradigm, changes your behavior completely. I, I, I really like that example with Ebenezer. I can't help but feel inspired and also feel like he's not very relatable. I don't find myself a crotchety old man. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to go from black to white. What do I need to change? How do I do it? Whose job is it? Is it God's job? Is it my job? How do I know when it's done? Is it ever done? How do you get to such a point 
We're described in the New Testament that you're so freed up that you want to laugh and dance and jump and shout and give your stuff away and lose all of your status and you're willing to go to prison. You're willing to embrace suffering. How does that happen? We're going to explore this a lot more with subsequent lessons. I hope that what we're starting with is a journey to go deeper. A lot of times it's easy for me to think of Christianity as just the salvation process. And then from then on, it's like, oh, well, I graduated like that. That was the I ran the race and I graduated like I believed, repent, got baptized. That's really just the the starting line. It's like that's where God gives us like spiritual life and we go from dead to alive And then we have to start running the race. It's easy for me to think that um, justification, the initial salvation was the goal. And God wants to change us all from the inside out. And a little bit of that might happen before you are in Christ. But realistically, most of the work is going to get done afterwards. That's right. But if we don't understand what repentance is or what God's trying to do, then we're going to have a hard time experiencing it. We're going to have a hard time cooperating with him. So let's look some more at what are some examples of repentance in the New Testament? Whose job is it? Paul says to the church in Philippi, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So is it God's job or is it our job? You sure? Who, who does the work in this? That's tricky. Both. Both. What does that mean? (laughs) Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. This has frustrated theologians since there were theologians. What is God's job? What is our job? We are God's project. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, May he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul is the king of run-on sentences. But this sounds like it's God's job. We're just kind of the recipient. That makes me feel better because I don't know what I'm doing. May he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It sounds like the scriptures earlier in Luke that we looked at and said that their eyes were opened, that their minds were opened. It's a paradigm shift. 2 Corinthians 5 The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for their sake. 
The love of Christ controls us. That, that sounds to me like God's doing the work. But Lindsay, you are also right. It's also our job. We are not without delegated responsibility. Moses said, return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. I think that's Deuteronomy 5. Um, Prophet Ezekiel says, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. That sounds like it's our job. John the Baptist, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus puts the burden of responsibility on us. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Remember then what you have seen and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. In Acts, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. And lastly, Paul. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So is it our job or is it God's job? Yes. <laughs> Fred question. God is the one who transforms us. Repentance Repentance isn't the goal. Keith uses an analogy a lot of times, the the root and the fruit. Kind of a cause and effect. In this context, repentance is the root to bear fruit. Meaning that the change, the focus is on the after. God wants to transform you from the inside out, but it's not just to say you did it. It's so that you can be like Ebenezer or Zacchaeus or be like Jesus. It's this radical transformation. We heard a lot in those scriptures of threats and punishment. I think there's a place for fear. Parents, you can probably attest to this. Fear can be a good motivator. But when you're trying to get your kid to do something and you have negative reinforcement, a disincentive, (laughs) the goal isn't that you just want to hurt them. You're trying to help them do what's best for them. Trying to help them understand that sometimes there's consequences for our actions. So God uses fear, Jesus uses fear as an incentive to kind of get rid of distractions, to jolt you awake, to help you focus. But the overarching theme of the Bible is love. The story is we show up at our own trial, guilty, about to be condemned, and the judge puts a towel around his waist, washes us clean, pays our debts, erases our trespasses, adopts us, gives us clothes, food, a house, keys to a car, pays for our education. 
This is the inner repentance. And no matter where you're starting at, it's this understanding of, of who God is and what's really going on that transforms us. And the spirit, it's the Spirit's job to do that transformation, and it's our job to cooperate. It can be very stressful to feel like you've got to somehow like manifest this joy and giddy. It's just it's hard to do on your own, and it's that's it's not natural. But God gives us templates for how to go to Him, a relationship with Him, our relationships with each other that help naturally produce this with the Spirit's help. But we have to be doing the right things going to those things. <clears throat> so my prayer is that in 2021, we can repent. And it's not, it's not a burden. It's not a chore. If you said we're having a party, we're going to do a lot of repentance. I've never heard that before. That, that's not high on the list of priorities. But if I could actually experience something supernatural, like the characters in the Bible did, like my favorite example of Ebenezer, if I could actually walk away feeling like that, then I would go to that repentance party. So my hope is that in 2021, we can shake off the baggage, whatever happened last year, with the fast, we can get dialed in. We can seek God and give Him our best. And that uh, He can help us to repent. We can believe the good news. We can understand Him better, who He is, what He wants. We can understand how bad sin is, how bad we were on our own, how good we are now in Christ. I want to see God differently. I want to see everything different. He says, you're no longer a slave, but a son and an heir. You are dearly loved children. I'm looking for you like a lost sheep, like a lost coin, like my favorite jewelry. God wants us to return to him. He's always looking down the driveway, waiting for our return, wanting to come run out and hug us no matter who we are or where we are.